Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you very much for attending today's uh, Tall Rounds. Um, I want to give a lot of credit to Peter Aziz, who's here to my left. Peter is one of, uh, is the uh, pediatric electrophysiologist and also genetic electrophysiologist here at, uh, at the clinic in our group and also in pediatric cardiology. So thank you, Peter, for arranging this. And uh, today we have a great uh, session. Uh, we're going to talk about contemporary and collaborative management of inherited arrhythmias from uh, ion channels to uh, sympathectomy to, uh, to, uh, so with the, and genetic testing and indications for uh, defibrillators. So want to use what um, Dr. Van Wagner discussed in terms of ion physiology and action potentials and translate to the bedside. That's the, the goal of this brief talk. And I'll move a bit fast uh, given the length of time. We have uh, a case presentation here, an 11-year-old with a family history of sudden death. Uh, she initially presented, uh, as a matter of fact, with non-channelopathic symptoms of chest pain. Uh, she was an otherwise healthy child at the time. And in examining her and, and revealing history, we discovered that her paternal uncle died in his dorm room at 18 years of age. Uh, it was after his alarm sounded, his roommate reports that there was some strange breathing that was noted uh, and the patient was found to be unresponsive thereafter. Uh, this was tabulated as a sudden explained death. Of course, this happened years ago, and that's the amount of information that we had. Getting an ECG on our 11-year-old patient uh, perhaps was insightful in terms of what happened to her uncle. Uh, if we look at this ECG, it shows a normal sinus rhythm, but if you examine lead two a bit more closely, uh, you see here without using calipers, hopefully, that the QTC here is prolonged at 510 milliseconds. And this is a, a case of long QT syndrome. So long QT syndrome from a broad scope of epidemiology and, and patient presentations happens in about 1 in 2,500 patients in the ion channelopathy world, that's quite frequent. So we do see quite a bit of long QT syndrome. It's a leading cause of autopsy negative sudden death. Uh, cases about 1,000 a year in the United States and mostly in young children, typically about 8 to 10. That's the peak. Uh, the hallmark presentation is syncope without a prodrome. And the hallmark arrhythmia is torsades, uh, one that we've, we'll see uh, a handful of times today. Long QT syndrome genotypes are pretty specific. So long QT1, long QT2, and long QT3 are the, the prototypes of, uh, of long QT genotypes. Uh, Dr. Peter Schwartz years ago um, described what triggers exist in each long QT syndrome. Long QT1 is predominantly uh, triggered by exercise in terms of um, events. Long QT2 can have emotional triggers or sleep, and long QT3 is predominantly uh, affecting patients in their sleep. Uh, looking, examining this in a table format, uh, the three uh, uh, genotypes of one, two, and three, you see that long QT1 is, is the predominant and most common form, affects the KCNQ1. All of these affect different phases of the action potential. Um, Dr. Von Wagner demonstrated how uh, the potassium ion channels behave a bit differently than sodium ion channels in long QT3, and that's demonstrated here between one, two, and three. Uh, the triggers can be different. Um, uh, the, the response to exercise can be different, and, and therefore the efficacy of beta blockade can also be different. Where in long QT1, exercise and catecholamines seem to be the predominant trigger. Beta blockers 
tend to have the best efficacy. Uh, the clinical diagnosis at the bedside, uh, we oftentimes employ the short score. Uh, again, Peter Schwartz, uh, a pioneer in long QT syndrome, described this point uh, assessment system for long QT syndrome. Uh, patients that have a score of three or higher typically at least are assigned an intermediate risk of having the diagnosis of long QT syndrome. Anything higher than four, that risk increases in terms of the probability of having long QT syndrome. Um, there are various factors involved in this short score. Having a QTC above 480 already starts you off at a point uh, score of three. Other things like torsades, having a family history, having syncope are all employed in this sports score. Exercise testing is another um, uh, uh, sort of benchmark or I'm sorry, bedside test that we oftentimes use where you can uh, reflect the differences in long QT1 and long QT2 relative to controls. One common misconception is that patients that are normal will shorten their QTC and exercise. That's actually not true. The long QT2 patients will actually decrease their QTC at peak and early exercise, and uh, their QTC will increase later. Uh, and we've uh, developed some uh, lines in the sand, as it were, for what constitutes an abnormal uh, repolarization pattern in QTC exercise. The treatment, natalol, tends to be the, uh, uh, the, the basis of all therapy in long QT syndrome, particularly in long QT 1 and 2. Uh, avoidance of medications that prolong the QT interval. We oftentimes find that patients that make it through the pediatric years without symptoms will oftentimes present themselves in adulthood after having exposure to a uh, repolarization offending agent. And there are very easy ways. There are even uh, iPhone apps to be able to assess what is okay to use and what is not, excuse me, what is not. And then device therapy really uh, is for the small subset of populations. And I'm gonna uh, leave that one alone because Dr. Bargov is gonna be speaking more about device therapy for our angiopathy patients. Uh, moving on to our next patient, 12 year old that had exertional syncope. This patient was coming down a water slide at a water park, uh, had syncope coming down the slide and landed in the pool unconscious. Uh, a lifeguard on the scene pulled the patient out of the pool though uh, CPR was not initiated, and unfortunately, the patient woke up spontaneously. Uh, had a normal ECG and echocardiogram, a negative family history. Was seen in, initially in an ED in Atlanta. Uh, just before discharge from the ED, had this very pathognomonic uh, rhythm that we've seen a glimpse of in Dr. Hammond's presentation. Uh, this is bidirectional VT and really should uh, steer us into the direction of uh, CPVT. Uh, CBVT oftentimes presents with polymorphic VT, or in the case that we just saw, bidirectional VT. Uh, clinical features, it's, uh, it's a cause of sudden cardiac death and the sending of emotional or physical stress. Uh, just to add a clinical point to Dr. Hammond's um, presentation, that patient was described to have an event of torsades on link transmission during sleep, but I would argue that that patient was not sleeping at the time. Um, we can think about what they were doing at the time. However, the heart rate was about 150 or so in sinus tachycardia before the event. So she was clearly not in REM sleep at the time. So exercise stress can, can be the, the key here to diagnosis in CPVT. Uh, if somebody has exertional syncope and everything otherwise looks the same, uh, an exercise test needs to be employed to assess phenotype. Uh, the phenotype is strong. 30% will have at least one cardiac event 80% will have at least one syncopal event on presentation. So oftentimes these patients have already had a pretty significant presentation uh, before they're diagnosed. 
prevalence is about a quarter of that of long QT syndrome, one in 10,000, so not as common. And as um, Dr. Von Wagner discussed, there are essentially four uh, uh, genes that are affected and proteins that are affected in long QT syndrome, RYR2 being the most predominant. Calcic question, collagen triton can also be affected. Treatment is nanolol. If patients have breakthrough on nanolol, we move to flecainide. If there's breakthrough on flecainide, we call Dr. Raja and employ his services for sympathectomy. And then the ICD in this patient population is a, a difficult topic, and I'll let Dr. Bargava tackle that one. <clears throat> Next is a 10-year-old with a family history of sudden death. Uh, excuse the, uh, the clarity of this ECG. It's one of the rare, very spontaneous, and very profound Brugada syndrome patterns that we have in our arsenal. Um, I have not seen a, a phenotype this strong before um, this patient. This is a, a patient that had eight siblings, four of which died suddenly in their sleep. Uh, he also had syncope, and the parents attributed his syncope to his mourning the loss of his siblings rather than there may be a, a, a confounding factor here that might be at play. Uh, again, this is Brugada syndrome. These are the Brugada genes. We typically look at SCN5A as the culprit. However, SCN5A is, uh, is a uh, elusive masquerader. It can cause various phenotypes, Brugada being one of them, long QT3 being another. Uh, taking this from bench to bedside, what we typically look at in the ECG in a patient at the, at the, um, at the bedside is uh, the three patterns, the, um, the coved pattern, the saddleback pattern, and type 3 is sort of a mix between the two, though not as profound. Uh, what Chen and Priority discovered and in, in, in published in Jack years ago is that different parts of the myocardium are behaving and depolarizing differently with various action potentials. And as Dr. Van Wagner discussed, what we see on the ECG is sort of a, a marrying of all of those action potentials at once. Uh, when there's that dispersion, we get what we see on the ECG. A very eloquent, elegant study by Dr. Zhang in circulation uh, showed the different action potential um, patterns and depolarization in Brugada patients. In normal patients, there's uniformity at all. The, the right ventricle depolarizes at essentially the same time. <clears throat> Whereas if somebody has Brugada, the, uh, the action potentials in the right ventricular output tract in particular are much later than they are in the rest of the heart. And that perhaps provides a, a reasoning for why we see what we see in V1 and V2 on an ECG. Risk and treatment, risk stratification, EP study is controversial. We can use provocative testing to elicit phenotype in those that are silent. And there are many Brugada patients that don't have demonstrable phenotype. Treatment, quinidine has been, uh, th there's not great evidence that quinidine works, though it certainly is a historical drug that, that's been used. Um, avoidance of sodium channel blockers, much like in the long QT syndrome story, we want to avoid medications that prolong the QT. We want to avoid medications that, um, that affect the sodium ion channel. Uh, ablation is a bit of a newcomer. And then again, ICD therapy will table for a later discussion. The key takeaways here is that we have to use the concept of the patient as broad. The patient that you see in your clinic may or may not have the phenotype that um, that will lead you to a diagnosis. And therefore, this has to be really a family approach. You're not treating the patient, you're treating the patient, the first few relatives that are likely affected, and then you follow that cascade down the line. And I think therein really lies um, the fruit of finding phenotype. And uh, fortunate, we're fortunate here to use uh, our resources, which is basic science, genetics, sports cardiology, EP surgery. Um, and again, I hope this, uh, 
this presentation will uh, will demonstrate the efficacy of, of that team collaboration. Thank you very much. So I am a sports cardiologist, I'm not an electrophysiologist, but I think it highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary approach uh, to the management of these types of patients. Um, specifically, when we start to talk about recreational or even competitive athletic participation in patients that have been diagnosed with these disorders. So I'm gonna focus mostly on long QT syndrome where we have a little bit more data and information and a little bit on CPVT um, as we move through this. So these are the faces of sudden cardiac death in athletes. These are what no one wants to see. These are heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, and um, tough for anyone to, to sort of take in, whether that's an athlete on the field receiving CPR, the young athlete with um, an obituary, or Good news, like Fabrice Mwambu, who survived his on-the-field sudden cardiac arrest after an hour of resuscitation, he in fact did have long QT syndrome that um, was not detected because it wasn't manifest all the time on multiple screening ECGs. So comparison of causes of sudden cardiac death in athletes, ion channelopathies are a known cause, hovering around 2 to 3%, depending upon which registry you look at. But in more contemporary studies, there's this large population of unexplained death, which is called sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, which didn't have an identifiable substrate, but probably represents a large proportion of undiagnosed channelopathies. So multiple pathways play into particularly long QT syndrome. We often think about fevers and medications, but that ultimate pathway at the end is that increased sympathetic drive to the heart, prolonging the QT, which is where exercise fits in particularly in long QT1. So what do the guidelines say? Often the Bethesda guidelines are referred to. This was published in 2005. Uh, channelopathies were lumped under multiple arrhythmias here. And in the same year, the 2005 European Society of Guidelines came out. And these were the classic paternalistic non-data driven. And basically it said that if you had long QT syndrome, you were restricted from sports. US guidelines, left some room for genotype positive, truly phenotype negative, whereas the European guidelines said even if you were genotype positive with zero evidence of a phenotype, you should be restricted. But these really lacked evidence. They were before the guidelines used things like classes of evidence and levels of recommendations. They were really based upon expert opinion and they were grounded in the quote, art of medicine because there wasn't a whole lot of science at the time. Things have evolved since that time, and there have been a few publications, particularly on long QT syndrome and return to play. The first came out in 2013 from Dr. Ackerman at the Mayo Clinic, and he had an experience with 60 long QT syndrome athletes who continued to participate despite recommendations from the Bethesda guidelines, not necessarily recommendations from Dr. Ackerman, though. So you can tell that looking at the Bethesda classification here, these low 1A sports have low dynamic, low static. These are things like golf, curling, and bowling. Whereas when we increase the dynamic component or increase the static component, those are the more active sports, basketball, weightlifting, um, type running type of events. And there was a high number of these athletes in that sector. So in his cohort, remember this is Dr. Ackerman's cohort, no increased long QT triggered cardiac events. There was one athlete who experienced two events during competitive sports who admitted to being non-compliant to beta-balker medication. So that boiled down to one cardiac event per 650 athlete years. Our own Dr. Aziz also published some data 
in 2015 on 103 people who participated in competitive, recreational, and physical education. A little more than half of these were asymptomatic, so genotype positive, phenotype negative. All were treated aggressively with beta blockers. You'll see this theme come up again. There were no deaths or long QT syndrome cardiac events reported during participation. There were 12 long QT syndrome competitive athletes participating contrary to uh, Bethesda guidelines, but there were zero events in 755 patient years. One more study has been published more recently in 2017, 172, so we keep getting larger numbers of uh, registry style case series. These were all phenotype positive, 66 recreational, 106 competitive athletes. Again, we see a really high number of very active individuals um, participating in, in a wide array of uh, athletic, athletics. Again, all on beta blockers. I'm gonna come back to that again. There were 13 cardiac events in this group with no deaths. So that's 13 cardiac events in 1,203 patient years. Nine of those events of the 13 actually occurred during activities of daily living, not competitive or recreational events. Four during recreational type sporting events and zero during competitive events. So pretty good success from these limited studies. This is just a brief recollection that in the newer guidelines, we have things like level of evidence. You'll note that level of evidence C is going to come up again, which is small case series, which I just presented to you, versus expert opinion, and a lot of class 2A versus class 2B recommendations. So in 2015, the ACC updated their guidelines for sport participation. Now there's a specific task force, specific task force just for cardiac channelopathies. It was brought out of the rest of the arrhythmic type disorders. And we have class one recommendations for evaluation in a comprehensive center with experience dealing with these. And those that are symptomatic being asymptomatic for three months before any further consideration is made. Those are class one. We have then genotype positive, phenotype negative, consideration for participation in all competitive sports with appropriate precautionary measures. This now is given of a level of evidence of 2A um, excuse me, a class 2A recommendation with level of evidence C. And then we have manifest long QT syndrome. Symptomatic or manifest on multiple ECGs may be considered now, not totally restricted, with a class 2B recommendation. So things have progressed since 2015, excuse me, 2005. Just last year, the ESC published some updated guidelines. Let's have a look at what they say. They do have some class 1 recommendations now. That really revolves around treating them aggressively, and making sure that they uh, are seen by experts. A 2B recommendation for shared decision-making should be considered for sport participation in genotype positive, phenotype negative. Recall that in 2005, they said if you were genotype positive, you were absolutely 100% restricted. They did not go as far, though, as saying that appropriately treated manifest long QT can still participate. Briefly about CPVT, 2015 ACC guidelines really recommend restriction at this time if you have manifest CPVT. In fact, the 2020 ESC guidelines didn't discuss CPVT at all. But there has actually been one study published since then, again from uh, Dr. Ackerman at the Mayo Clinic on competitive sports participation and a single center experience. Small cohort, 21 athletes with CPVT who remained active 
and 42 non-athletes who were either non-athletes to start with or discontinued their athletic participation, all appropriately treated. And what they saw was not a significant difference in the event rate between those who continued to participate and those who were not participating in athletics. Now, that event rate is still higher than classical long QT syndrome, but not different between the two in a single center with expertise. And the time to event rate was about the same between the two groups as well. So this really then boils down to shared decision-making. I've talked about it once or twice, or I brought it up once or twice. And this is one of the more valued roles, I think, in sports cardiology and our contribution to this multidisciplinary team. And really it has to rely on knowledge of the appropriate diagnosis, expertise in that cardiac condition, humility to say that we don't know everything and that we need to seek other opinions in a lot of cases, respect for patient priorities and recognize the patient's voice and opinion in this, so not being absolutely paternalistic, which the 2005 guidelines were. Teamwork, this is a team-based approach, multidisciplinary approach, and communication, communication to the patient, the school, if there's a school involved, the parents, um, and, and multiple resources along the way. So some general sum up exercise in cardiac channelopathies, they really require a comprehensive evaluation and management by specialists with experience and expertise. I can't stress that enough, particularly when we're talking about sports participation, that these athletes be thoroughly evaluated by experts and thoroughly worked up. This is not a random genetic test and off you go. This is not 12 and a half of BID metoprolol and off you go. These patients were aggressively treated with natalol aggressively treated with natalol and or sympathetic denervation when they were presented in the published case series. There have been no reports in the U.S. of genotype positive, truly phenotype negative, having their sentinel cardiac event during sports. So in the U.S., there are no restrictions. Avoidance of QT prolonging drugs. Uh, Dr. Aziz talked about this. Um, we talk extensively about electrolyte and hydration replenishment, avoidance of dehydration, avoiding those hyperthermic febrile illnesses. And then when we talk about sports, not all only that, we talk about um, core temperature changes with uh, heat and um, training and sport participation and how that may increase your susceptibility. We talk acquisition of an AED as part of the athlete's personal sports safety gear so they have their bag with their shoes and their mitt and their own AED rather than having to rely on an institution to provide that. Establishing an emergency action plan with the school and team officials. I can't overemphasize how an emergency action plan is important. And then respecting the patient and family autonomy and that shared decision-making approach. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.